Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. What is true freedom? Have you ever thought about that? We tend to think of freedom as the lack of restrictions so that we can do whatever we want, but I want to make the case here that freedom is not the lack of boundaries, but finding the right ones to enable us to be our best for God. Drawing on the example of ancient Israel in Egypt and their liberation, I think we can see how easy it is to be physically free and yet mentally enslaved. So join me as I explore this message, Podcast 72, Free as a Fish on Land. How many of you know that America is the land of the free? You've heard that before, right? We have a saying from our national anthem. It goes, Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free. And that moment in the song when it says the free the singer holds that note. You ever notice that? And if people are going to get excited during that song, that's where it happens. You know, the brave part happens after that, but the free is really where the emphasis is. And so I was thinking, you know, freedom is a big deal in America, but Donald McMillan, he's not from America. So I was thinking of another cultural, <laughs> another cultural reference Now, of course, it's an American-made movie about William Wallace, so we we still can claim some credit here. But do you remember any of you who saw this movie, Braveheart, the scene, the battle scene, where it's the definitive moment. You have the the English on one side, and their troops are very large. And then you have the Scottish over here. And the army is starting to leave. And so William Wallace comes out with the, the sweet face paint, blue, and... He has to rally the troops, right? You remember this? Any of you see this movie? Some of you have seen this, right? Well, anyhow, this is a quote from the movie version. I don't know if this is historically accurate, but it's pretty good. So he says, I am William Wallace, and I see a whole army of my countrymen in defiance of tyranny. You have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What would you do without freedom? Will you fight? And of course, they say no. And a veteran soldier pipes up. He says, fight against... I'm sorry, I don't have any Scottish accent at all to do this justice. (laughs) Fight against that? No, we will run and we will live. That's what they say, and they're they're dissipating. William Wallace says, I, I, fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade... All the days from this day to that one for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And then everybody goes nuts and they fight and they win the battle. (laughs) We love freedom. I love freedom. Do you love freedom? Freedom's good. You know, freedom is getting to choose what you want. Here's a dictionary definition. Freedom is the power or right to act, to speak or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. I like to be able to to be free to choose 
how to act and how to think, don't you? I don't want someone telling me what to think. When we look at Israel, in particular in the Old Testament, the definitive moment of freedom comes from Egypt, right? When God liberates his people from Egypt. So I thought we'd look at that and uh, we'll get to Exodus 3 in just a moment here. But more than a thousand years before Christ, the Hebrew people, a clan of immigrants, came to Egypt because of a famine. And as immigrants sometimes do, they remained separate. They lived in the land of Egypt, but they remained separate. They retained their cultural identity, their language, and some of their beliefs, although I think a lot of their beliefs they hedged on, to be honest. Anyhow, after some time, the Pharaoh decided that these Hebrews were trouble, and he was afraid of them. He, and it's interesting if you think about the fear that Pharaoh had. His fear was, if we get attacked by one of our enemies, then these Hebrew, Hebrew tribes, they're going to rise up and join our enemies and attack us as well. So his conclusion was, well, let's just dominate them and treat them harshly, because that'll really solve that problem. I mean, I, know, I can't change history, but like, what if, what if instead he's like, hey, let's be nice to the Hebrews, and then they won't hate us, and then we don't have to fear them anymore. But he didn't go that route. So anyhow, he set taskmasters over them. There were four levels of oppression. First, he set taskmasters over, over them to make them have heavy burdens, and then he straight out enslaved the Hebrew people. And so they became slaves in Egypt. Their lives were bitter with hard service. And then before long, Pharaoh decided to initiate a clandestine government ethnic cleansing program through the midwives who were told to perform post-birth abortions on the males but let the females survive. And the, the midwives did not, did not do that. You don't get into midwifery, if I said that right, uh, if, if you want, if you, you know, I mean, you, you get into it to deliver babies, to help babies, to help mothers, and so they, they wouldn't do it. And so Pharaoh issued a public edict for all Egyptians that if they saw a Hebrew baby boy, they were to cast that child into the Nile and drown it. Well, into the midst of all that, Moses was born, and then a little while after, God says to him in Exodus 3, 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. That's something, huh? You ever go through something and you feel like you're all alone or you feel like nobody understands what you're going through? God knows. I, I find comfort, comfort in that. God knows our suffering. Verse 8, And I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I want you to look at verse 8 with me once again. He says he wants to deliver them out, right? But that's not just it. It's not just freedom. He wants to deliver them out and then bring them to a land. So it's, it's not just deliver them out and then they can just scatter and live in some sort of anarchist homesteading existence out in the woods. No, he wants, to, he wants to free them and then make and bring them into this other land. So that's important. Look at chapter 6. Moses, of course, goes down to old Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And what does Pharaoh say then? Has anybody ever read Exodus before? What, what does Pharaoh say to Moses? No, I'm not letting you go. And your people, I don't know who you are. I don't know who Yahweh your God is. I don't... I'm not going to let you go. And what does he do? He makes it harder, right? He, he says, you're going to have to make the same number of bricks, but no straw. You get your own straw now, right? Do you remember this? 
the movie version at least. I'm just, I'm just messing with you. I know you guys know this. All right, Exodus chapter 6, verse 5. So what happens is Moses gets rejected by Pharaoh. Then he goes back to the elders, and they reject him, and they say, oh, thanks a lot, Moses. We were fine without you. And now God's got to build him up. And we read here in verse 5, God says to Moses, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptian hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land and I, that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. So God's goal is twofold here. One is to deliver them out from the Egyptians, and then the other is to bring this people to a land. But now we get a little more insight here where God says to them, See that in verse 7? I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. So God's goal here is that he would have a people, that they would be his people, and that bringing them to the land is all part of that. Look at chapter 12. After the ten plagues, the Egyptians finally let the children of Israel go. Exodus 12, verse 30, And Pharaoh rose up in the night. We're not going to read through the ten plagues, but they were these acts of God's power that brought the land of Egypt, a powerful empire, to its knees. And at the last of stage of that, they let them go. And Pharaoh arose, verse 30, in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there is not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve Yahweh, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. Bless me also. I love how the king always throws that in. And pray for me too. <laughs> I don't know how much blessing they did of Pharaoh when they left. <laughs> They're like, let's just get out of here, man. And so it's interesting what Pharaoh says here in verse 31, right in the middle there. He says, go out. He says to them, go out. Get out of here. But then he also says, go serve the Lord, right? So it's, the whole point of Operation Liberation from Egypt is, is, is not just to go out from Egypt. It's, it's to go out and then go serve the Lord. Even Pharaoh knew that, right? Even Pharaoh knew that. And so that's, that's what they had been asking for, and that's what finally they were able to do. And then we read in chapter 14... In 14, we learn about how God splits the sea, right? The Red Sea and destroys the Egyptian army. All right, now at that final moment when the Egyptian dead are washing up on the shore after the sea has gone back to normal, those of you who are familiar with this, right? At that moment, the Hebrews are totally free. Do you know what I mean? Because they're not just free in the sense they're out of the land and they're safe. They're free in the sense that all the people who would who Pharaoh would summon to chase them down, they're all dead now. The Egyptian army is decimated. They're drowned. They are totally and completely free. There's no going back, right? They're on the other side of the Red Sea. There's no army to chase them down. They are completely liberated. And what do the people do? They praise God. They sing a song. That's chapter 15. 
They sing this beautiful song, the Song of Moses, where they're praising God for how he's a great warrior, how he throws a horse rider and the army into the sea. And then in chapter 16, the very next chapter, we read in verse 2, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots. We're going to have some meat pots today after the service, huh? <laughs> I like meat pots. You like meat pots? <laughs> meat pots, and sorry to the gluten-free people, and bread to the full. You see that? That's what they're saying. They're like, man, you know, why don't you just... Why did God just kill us too? We remember sitting by the meat pots and had bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So they're free, but they still need to eat. That's the point here. Right? They're free, but they still need to eat. And you see, there's not very much trust yet with God. They're actually saying, why don't you just kill us with the Egyptians? I mean, that's a pretty harsh thing to say, isn't it? You could just say you're hungry. Right? I'm hungry. Can we figure out a way to go hunt or trade with another tribe in the area or find some way to get food. But instead, it's very dramatic. God, you brought us out here to kill us with hunger. God doesn't respond. He's just like, look, I'm going to rain bread on your head. How about that? But here's the thing that we need to learn from this, because when we get to 1 Corinthians 10 at the end here, the, the point that's going to be made there is that these are for our examples. Okay. And it's really easy for us to look at how they behaved and how fickle they were, jumping from one point of view to another, for us to say to ourselves, those silly Israelites, look how pathetic they are. They've got no faith. I'm better than them. It's easy, it's easy to do that, right? But I think what the scripture calls us to do, and we'll see this later, is that to, to check ourselves, Right? So I, I, want, I want you to look at these incidents, not from the perspective of, I can't believe they did that. Instead, look at it from the perspective, if I was there, I probably would have done it too. All right? And then asking the question going forward, in what areas of my life am I doing that now? Am I being the wandering Israelite not trusting in God now? Because we, we do this. We do. And so it's easy to look for them to look back at the meat pots and the bread to the full, and, you know, they just conveniently forget that their backs were scarred with whippings from being slaves, or that their children were born as second-class citizens, literally as slaves, their children, if they survived childhood. But God gives them manna, and I found a picture of manna on the internet, so it must be true. I have no idea what manna, you know what manna means, right? In Hebrew, it means, what is it? <laughs> it's like, so it probably looked a little different than a loaf of bread. So God gives them manna, and, the, and the, the whole point is they go out and collect it each day, so they have to trust God each day, right? And then after that, God brings them to his mountain. This is the moment of all the, the fireworks going off, right, where God does this huge display for his people. He shakes the ground. He brings the lightning down. He's got a cloud around the mountain. There's thunder, and there's the sound of a trumpet, and God speaks, and everyone hears him. That's Mount Sinai, this incredible moment 
Uh, what is Mount Sinai all about? Mount Sinai is this moment in Israelite history when God says to them, this is who I am and this is how I want you to live. And then there's a waiting period because he knows that they're totally overwhelmed. They actually run away because it's just too intense. And they say to Moses, you go talk to him. Right? And, and so Moses talks to God and all this. And then eventually Moses comes back down from that mountain and he speaks to the people. That's chapter 24 here. Once the, the smoke has settled. And he says in Exodus 24 verse 3, Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. The people say, all right. What God has said, this covenant relationship, we now freely enter in. We now agree. Now that we're out of Egypt, we've been free from Egypt, we agree now to limit ourselves to the relationship of the covenant. And the covenant is just basically the laws that God sets out. Laws for his people, but also laws for himself, to, that he's going to take care of them. So covenants are always two-way. For example, marriage is a covenant as well. And so that's the thing about relationship Relationships always limit freedom. Always. But they open up new freedoms. Right? So they close down certain freedoms and then they open up other freedoms. For example, how would my wife feel if she came home today and I said to her, I sold the house. I know I didn't talk to you about this, but I sold the house. It's already done. And I bought a sailboat. And I've decided that this year we're going to sail around the world. And you're going to homeschool the kids. And we're going to do a, a home birth for number four on the boat. I'm not free to just do that. Not if I want to keep my wife. Right? Relationships limit freedom. Right? You don't even have to be in a marriage. It could be a friendship. It could be a work relationship. If you're in a work relationship, part of that is you have to show up on time, right? Well, most jobs, some jobs give you flexibility there, but most jobs, you got to show up on time. Uh, uh, certain jobs, if you, I think probably most jobs, again, if you don't show up one day, they could just fire you, right? Because you, as soon as you signed up and said, all right, here's the relationship. I'm going to do this work. You're going to give me this money, right? That's the relationship. As soon as you do that, you limit your freedom to just get up and go hiking in the Adirondacks because you feel like it, right? So it, it limits your freedom to just go do whatever you want. But you know, we understand that because what, do, what are you trading for the freedom to just get up and do whatever you want that day? The freedom to have money to buy things that you need to survive and things that you, that you enjoy. So we understand that freedom is a trade-off. And as soon as you get into a relationship of any kind, you are voluntarily limiting certain freedoms that you had before that relationship. But it opens up other freedoms. And so that's what happens with the Israelites. They enter into this relationship with God. Now they're not free to worship the Egyptian gods anymore. They're not. They gave up that freedom. But what do they get in return? Our God is a consuming fire, they say. Right? And they had seen what he had done in the land. And he's going to take care of them. He's literally feeding them day in and day out with this manna bread. Those are some pretty nice perks to this relationship, right? 
Oh, and by the way, they're not slaves anymore under constant ethnic cleansing from a madman. By the way, right? That's just a minor thing. So anyhow, Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. They're journeying on the way to the promised land, and they start thinking about cucumbers. Look at Numbers 11, verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. Mm. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, oh, that we had meat to eat. I was a vegetarian for one summer. It was a hard summer. Uh, some people tell me, my dad, uh, that when he was a vegetarian, which you were a vegetarian a lot longer, Five years, okay. He said he, he, he felt better than normal as a vegetarian. I never felt better. I felt worse. I felt hungry all the time. I would eat this mound of vegetables, right? And, I'd, and for like 15 minutes, my belly would feel full. And then like an hour later, I'm hungry again. I'm like, this is too much work. And so I just ate pasta constantly, which that wasn't really good either. But I had a strong craving for meat. And at the end of that summer, I indulged. So... I understand this. I don't know if you understand this, but they're eating this bread day in, day out, and they're like, oh, if we just had a hamburger. We have the bun. We don't have the burger, you know? And so that's, what they're, that's what's going on here. Oh, that we have meat to eat. Verse 5, we remember the fish. The fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and for the Italians in the room, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. This is like you're on a long trip with the kids in the minivan, right? They start complaining and fighting with each other, like, we're almost there. Moses is like, we're almost to the promised land. We'll get there. And there's some bumps along the road, and this is one of those. And it's amazing how they completely forget about the slavery, about the oppression, about how their babies were getting killed. It's all about how there was free fish in the Nile. You just put in a hook and psh. Yeah, but if an Egyptian saw you there, he would take your fish away and say thanks, right? Or he'd whip you. So it's really not as good as that, you know, that's the problem we have. And I, again, I don't, it's easy to make fun of them. But I don't want to do that. I want us to say to ourselves, how is this like us? How is this like us that we can forget where we came from? We can forget our own Egypt, whatever God delivered you from in the past. Look at chapter 14. So eventually they reach the promised land. They send in spies to check out the land. And the spies come back with a bad report, mostly. And so they get talked out of going in. And they decide they're going to rebel against Moses. And they're going to pick a new leader, and they're going to go back to Egypt. So that's chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, yeah, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. What's the problem here? What's the problem here? Why won't they go in? Well, they're convinced that God has brought them from slavery to death. 
So they were slaves, but now they're going to be dead. And that's worse than being a slave, right? I mean, that's rational. That makes sense. Now, what is God truly doing? He's bringing them from slavery, and then he's going to be with them, and he's going to bring them into this land so that they can have their own place to live, right? That's what God's going to do. He's going to protect them. He's going to help them to defeat these giants and all this other stuff they're talking about here. And it says there in verse 3, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? That's not what God's doing. God's not bringing them into the land to fall by the sword. God's bringing them out of the land into the new land to be their God and for them to be his people. And here's the bottom line. They could not believe that God was going to take care of them. They just couldn't, for whatever reason, they couldn't believe it. You know, there are a couple that did, right? But by and large, they just, they just couldn't trust God that he was going to take care of them. They just couldn't do it for, for whatever reason. And so, and so they didn't. They refused. They rebelled. And they got 40 years of wandering in the desert as a result. And God said to them, 40 years until you're all dead. And then I'll bring your children into the land. And maybe they'll agree to go when I say to go. That's kind of ironic as well because their statement was, we're going to go attack and try to get into this land, we're going to die, and then they're going to have our wives and our children as prey. And so God's like, you know what? I got your children. <laughs> I have always had your children. I'll take care of them. But since you don't want to go, let's just wait till you all die, and then I'll bring in the next generation. That's what ends up happening. God waits that time. These people die off, and he brings the children in. Go over to 1 Corinthians 10. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is they didn't believe that Yahweh was going to be their God, that he was going to take care of them. So they rebelled. And so now the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is the nature of freedom and how does this work for us in our lives? Because we, we saw last week how sin enslaves us. Do you know what I mean? Sin enslaves us. You go into sin a little bit and then you find you can't quite do what you really want to do because it's enslaving you. It's, it's, it's hemming you in. It's like a straitjacket, making it so you're not free to move. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. That's the punchline, verse 6. These things, we need to look at these things as an example, negative example of what not to do. Right? We want to look at this so that we might not desire evil as they did. What's your Egypt? What do we say to ourselves? We say, oh, I, Christianity, you know, God's too restrictive. You know, I want to be free to live how I want. I want to be free to hold a grudge. I want to be free to make fun of annoying people. I want to be free to question authority and use foul language and sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend. We want to be free, right? We want to be free to indulge in the different things that we find attractive, whatever it might be. But if you're in a relationship with God, just like them, if you're in a relationship with God, you have to give up some freedoms to have that relationship because there are certain things that are offensive to God. They're just offensive to God. And so look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters 
as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, or the NASB has the Lord to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let everyone think that he stands. Take heed, lest he fall. No temptation. I love verse 13. This is one of my mom's favorite verses, too. She's always quoting this. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. When there is a temptation that comes up, there is a way out. I realize that's a, that's a step of faith that we have to have to, to do that. But look, that's what God says, is that if there is a temptation, there's also a way out. We just got to find what it is. I want to just think about freedom for a moment. This is a quote from Alan Ehrenholt. He says, Most of us in America believe a few simple propositions that seem so clear and self-evident that they scarcely need to be said. Here's one of them. Choice is a good thing in life. The more of it we have, the happier we are. Authority is inherently suspect. Nobody should have the right to tell others what to think or how to behave. And so people say Christianity is too restrictive. It's too limiting. It's too stifling. It's, it's not, you know, it's not letting me have fun, do what I want to do, right? Once, once we are in that relationship with God, we start to get confused about what it was like before, Right? And what I mean by confused is we start to forget those painful, traumatic experiences we had B.C., before Christ. They start to fade. And we start to say to ourselves, it was pretty good back then. It was pretty good back in the old days, in the glory days. That's what we do. Just like them, that's what we do. And so this is our human nature here. We buck up against authority. We don't want anyone to have authority over us. Not even God. We, we say to God, well, yeah, I know, I know that's what you say. But, uh, and I appreciate the salvation offer. Thank you for that. Because I do have this mortality problem. You know, eventually I'm going to die. So I really did need some help there. But otherwise, you know, I really just think I can do it my way. That's what we're tempted to do. And so back to the fish. Is a fish free in water? What do you think? Yeah, you have a fish. I'm not talking in a little fishbowl. That's not very free. And I'm not talking in an aquarium. There's some limitations there. But I'm talking about out in the wild, in the lake, in the ocean. Is a fish free in the water? Yeah, a fish is free in the water. Why is a fish free in the water? A fish is free in the water because that's the environment. Those are the boundaries God designed for the fish. Okay? Is a fish free on land? Oh, yes and no, right? But ima imagine that there's one of these fish and they say to themselves, Oh, I just, I feel like I'm so stifled by this water. I feel like water is just all around me. And no matter what I do, there's another world out there that I can experience. And you know what? I've always thought that I'm different than all the rest of you fish. 
and I got to be true to myself and follow my dreams. And I, I got I to gotta take risks. And I know that none of you believe in me, but I'm different. I'm a fish made for land. There's this whole other realm out there is land. And that's true freedom. Oh, yes, that's true freedom. True freedom is living out of the water. You can't live out of the water because you don't have the courage to do it. But if you could liberate yourself, you could be free as a fish on land. For 30 seconds. That's the only downside because you got that 30 seconds of like flapping around and looking at the sky and like maybe trees for the first time. And the fisherman that probably pulled you out licking his lips. And, and then you're like, then you're dead. Is that true freedom? Well, in one sense, it is true freedom. This fish did experience the liberation they were looking for their whole lives. But is it better? No, it's not better to be a dead fish than a live fish. Or, or think about a train. What if the choo-choo train said one day, I don't want to be on the tracks anymore. I'm too confined by these tracks. I want to be free. I want to have absolute freedom. I want to be able to go on the road. I want to be able to go in the woods. Yeah, the train can leave the tracks. And there's that 30 seconds again of absolute freedom and glory. And the train is like, I'm liberated. And then it tips over, it crashes or explodes or whatever happens when trains derail. And then now it's dead. So what about humans? What about people? And so what, what I'm saying to you is there's, there's a, a boundary by design. There's a boundary by design for the fish. It's water. There's a boundary by design for humans, just from a physical point of view. We don't do so well in outer space without the suit. Even with the suit, you can get hit by space junk. That's a whole other problem. But like, if, you just, if you just go in outer space, as you are right now, there might be that 30 seconds. And then that crazy cold temperature and the lack of air <laughs> do their work. And now you're part of the space junk floating around up there. Right? Is that true freedom? Well, you know, if that's, if that's how you define freedom. But you know what a greater freedom is? To find out what your boundaries are. And who's qualified to tell us what human boundaries are? Well, God is. He made us, right? So we, we find out, okay, from God, what is the boundary where we can thrive? What are limitations that are for our good that can help us to be like a train on the tracks, right? To be able to go places and do things. So that's what we want to do. We think of freedom as a lack of restrictions. And I, I feel like that's, there's a problem with that. Like as children, we say to ourselves, man, I just wish I could be free to go to bed whenever I want. You ever feel like that as a kid? Anybody? Or my kids just got all this candy and now they're, they want to be free to eat all of the candy all at once because it's there. As parents, we restrict the children's freedom. And it, I, I remember being a kid and thinking to myself, I can't wait to be an adult because I want to determine my own path in life. I want to be free. And then when, when we're, uh, we grow up, some of us go to college. In college, we want to be free from the relentless essays and the tests, <laughs> right? And we get a job and we, and we rent an apartment. And we, and we say, oh, man, be free to, I'd love to be free to just change the color of this wall. I wish, I wish in my apartment I could change the color I wish I could change this, change that. So then maybe you buy a house. And now with the house, you have limitations there too. You have to pay taxes. You have to pay insurance. You have to pay your mortgage. And now you've got these other neighbors that you'd like to be free to get rid of. 
right? It's funny, I have one neighbor that is meticulous with the leaves. And then another that believes in the philosophy, until they're all fallen, I will not lift a finger. And I'm the buffer between these people, right? <laughs> Anyhow, how can you be truly free? Think about it. How can you be truly free? I know, I know. Jim Bodner, if you moved to an island, you take your guitar, move to an island, then he's truly free, right? There's nobody that's going to tell him what to do. There's only, there's only a few problems with that. You still got to find food. You still got to find shelter. And you know, it's really hard to survive by yourself anywhere, right? So like, no matter what, there's no, it's just, it's just an illusion, ladies and gentlemen. There's no such thing as absolute freedom. The only one who has absolute freedom, who even has a chance at it, is God. And he limits himself based on his relationship with us, that he's going to take care of us. Like I said before, freedom is a good thing. I want to be able to make up my own choices and have my own beliefs and, and live my own life. But in the process of doing that, we want to recognize that doing that well means finding out what the good limitations are and living within those boundaries so that we can do the things that truly bring us flourishing and relationship with God and meaning in life. So that's the kind of freedom that I'm talking about this morning. You know, there are certain drugs that rewire your brain. If you have certain drugs, that they, they, just, they just twist your brain so that you, you can't feel, other things don't feel as pleasurable anymore. Like I had a bagel that my uh, brother-in-law gave my wife. She was down there and she, these lower New York, New Jersey bagels, un unbelievable. And that brought so much pleasure. But like, those simple little things, you just, you just lose those. Right? And so if you want to be free in one sense, you have to limit yourself in another sense. Or think about holding grudges. Like, I, I get tempted to hold grudges. You ever get tempted? Like, somebody does you wrong, you're just like, I, I'm just going to hold on to this for a little while. But the, here's the problem with holding on to a grudge. The problem is it, it twists your mind. It bends your, your thinking around. You, you, lo, you lose the capacity to be reasonable with respect to that person. That person who did you wrong might do something nice. They might do something really thoughtful for someone else. And then you're, you're thinking about them, yeah, well, there was probably an alternative motive there. They were probably just doing that to look good because they're such a scoundrel, right? And our, our brains get all twisted around these grudges or this bitterness or unforgiveness, right? And it limits our freedom, right? And so what do we do? We do things God's way. He says, let it go, right? He says, forgive. When we do that, now we're free. We're free from that situation. It doesn't mean go put yourself back in it, but it does mean that we're free to let it go. Obviously, if the person repents, that's a whole other story. All right, so let me just wind things down here. There's this 90s band called Korn. I don't know if any of you ever listened to it, but this is kind of like a typical heavy metal band from my teenage years. And... The guy on the left there, his name is Brian Welch. He goes by Head, for short. Uh, he is an amazing guitar player. Uh, he ended up in this band called Korn in 1993. And uh, as of 2012, this band has sold 35 million copies worldwide. And they had 12 top 10 songs, eight in the top five on the Billboard 200. So Brian had a wife and a daughter while he's in this band. 
And his wife started using drugs. She started using meth. And she really neglected their daughter. And it caused a lot of problems. And eventually, his wife just left. Just left the, the picture. And, and they ended up getting a divorce. And so Brian had custody of his daughter. And the problem with that was it's not really a good environment to raise a kid when you're a heavy metal guitar specialist. There's probably another term for that. Some of you could shred. Living on the road and you're in this party lifestyle, right? It's not really the greatest place for a little toddler, a little girl. He would have the bodyguards watch his daughter, right? And, and it was just all this drinking around her and everything else. And he, and he swore to himself, he was so angry at his wife that he swore to himself, I will never let drugs take control of my life like she did. Because she left the kid. She just up and left the kid. He said, I will never let that happen. Over time, the drugs did take control. And around 2005, she was about six years old. He had gotten so deep into meth that he had to have it when he woke up every morning. Make his food, make his powder, and snort it every morning. And so he's bringing his kid to school high. And, but then he's, he's on tour and everything else, and, and everything is just coming to a head in his life, and he's like, I'm doing the very thing that I hate. I have no control over myself. And everyone else on the outside would say, of this man, he's living the dream. He's got all the money. At, at his concerts, women throw themselves at him. Everybody loves him at his concerts. There's so much power that he has, and not to mention his musical talent. People say, somebody like this in a successful rock band in the late 90s, he's got the dream. He's living it. He's free. He can get on a plane and go anywhere in the world he wants, right? And yet, from his own story, from his inside perspective, he says, you know what? I was in prison. I was locked down. I had no control over my own life. That's what he says himself. Because what ended up happening next is that a real estate broker who said to him, I don't really do this. And I've never done this before, but... Let me give you this verse from the Bible. Let me give you this verse from the Bible. It's Matthew eleven twenty eight, and it says, Jesus says, Come to me all who, are, who labor and are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It goes on, it says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Brian didn't even understand all the words. <laughs> So he gets out of dictionary, he starts looking up all these words. You know, what, is, what does it mean, heavy laden and, and all this? And, and he just meditates on this verse, and he meditates on it, and he's just like, with all my money, with all my success, that's what I really want. That sounds good. And he decides to go to church. Now you imagine this guy showing up in church, <laughs> right? So by 2005, he shows up in church, and he just sits there. And they have, a, they have an altar call, and they say, anybody want to receive Christ? And this guy comes forward. And he goes forward with all his tattoos. He's, he's literally on drugs that very day, because he has it every morning. It's like breakfast for him. He comes forward. He receives Christ. He doesn't, he doesn't really know what's going on. He's like, I think I just did something. He goes home. He's still got the same problems. And he has this weird experience where he's, he's at home and he's praying and he cries out to God and he said he felt like there was a father's love that came over him. These are his own words. He said he felt this, this weird 
sensation. And it, look, I'm not saying you're going to feel that or I, I felt that. It's going to be different for different people. But that's what he said he felt. And he said in that moment, that experience was so strong that he said, I'm done with the drugs. I'm quitting the band. He took all his drugs, he flushed them, and he went to his band at a, a point where they're still very successful and says to them, I'm done, guys. It's one thing if your band tanks and you're like, ah, I'm done with that. It's another thing if they're doing well, right? And he says to them, I'm out of the band, guys. I found something better. And he finds rest for his tortured soul. And then he invests himself in becoming a father. And I'm not saying he, his life is totally peachy after that. But you know what? God broke him through the prison of the drugs, of the insanity, of the self-worship. And freed him to be in a relationship with God with limitations that give him life. Right? God's not here to ruin our lives. He's here to save us. So that's my encouragement to you. Wherever you're at, if, if you haven't yet made this commitment to follow Christ, make it. Make it, because it makes sense. He will give you rest for your soul. That's what he's in the business of doing. And if you've already done that, and if you've been on the journey to the promised land, and you're starting to think to yourself, oh, the meat pots, the cucumbers, the garlic. Look, the garlic, you know, the, the drugs, the alcohol, the, you know, where you would lie to get out of something, you know, it wasn't that great because then nobody could trust you. Or the grudge warped your brain. You know what I mean? Like all these different things that we were doing. That wasn't true freedom. That was just us slowly dying, just like a fish on land. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you give us the courage to choose freedom, but not any kind of freedom, the freedom that you offer us through a relationship with you. We know that you love us, and that, you that you desire the best for us. We ask that you help us to trust you, that we would not be like the, those wandering in the wilderness who over and over second-guessed you and questioned you. Help us to be those who genuinely trust you, even when you ask us to do something that is difficult. Give us that strength today, Father, and we thank you for the offer that you've given us of life, both now and in the age to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.